This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality bird watching tours with experienced professional guides to over a hundred destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and it uh, didn't occur to me until the last episode was out the door that I had forgotten to say that last time. I hope I didn't confuse anybody. Um, I have a few, a couple disparate birding-related topics to touch on at the top of the show this time around. We had some really good feedback from the last episode. That is um, 0120, the photography episode. Birders apparently have lots of opinions about photography. Who could have guessed, right? On our ABA Facebook page, uh, in the discussion about this episode, I wanted to highlight a comment by Eric Bruder, uh, riffing on the Pixar Didn't Happen comment that I think uh, Greg made. Uh, He states, I'm aware of at least two cases where expert birders had rare bird reports denied because text descriptions and sketches were not considered sufficient. He goes on to say that one of them was actually a a pretty well-known bird artist. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a shame. I, I think I responded to Greg that there's this aspect of photography that, that means that birders who perhaps aren't great at describing birds or, or at least aren't great at describing birds in the way that bird committees really like them to be described. I, you know, I think it's a good thing that we're getting photos to cover for, you know, what may have in the past been not great descriptions. You know, ultimately, I want the birds that are out there to be seen, to be documented, to get in the record that's important to me uh, and to a lot of other birders i still think it's a good thing to bring more people into that world uh, of you know documenting birds that they see but eric's point is a really good one you know not everyone wants to carry a camera that's fine you know maybe you don't like carrying heavy things or you you don't like the sort of the pick sharing mentality that is a big part of birding nowadays that's fine you know there are lots of ways to bird we should we should celebrate all of them uh, but we shouldn't feel as though a good description is not enough i think that was his point you know i hope we haven't gone too far the other way sometimes it, it definitely feels like we have uh, I do think that we are seeing the bar raised a little bit in terms of if, what we expect from documentation, and that's that's not a bad thing. You know, I've been an eBird reviewer. I've, I've served on a rare bird committee. I've, I've seen both sides of that equation. You know, it's it's a conversation that we are still having that we will probably continue to have. Uh, anyway, that's a that's a point I wish I'd made then. I will go ahead and make it now. That's that's my luxury. Anyway, thanks to everyone who chimed in on our social media spaces. This was a fun discussion uh, during and and after. Another quick thing, we have a few ABA events coming up, and I wanted to mention them here because one of them involves me. Uh, So I'm using the podcast to promote it. Uh, I am part of an ABA trip to Cuba in September of 2018. If for whatever reason you enjoy this podcast and want to come birding with me, you can do that in Cuba next fall. Fair warning, I will probably be recording stuff on the ground for a podcast episode if that excites you. If not, I I will not record you, uh, but I'll be recording me. 
and if you can't make it in September, if that time doesn't work well for you, you can go with Jenny Duberstein in March. She is great. Or with Ted Floyd, editor of Birding in April, also great. Heck, you know, you can go with all three if, if you want to. Uh, these will be smaller groups, so it should be a really great time. I am excited for Cuban Trogan, the Hummingbird. You can get information about all that at events.aba.org. On this episode, ABA President Jeff Gordon is here to talk about uh, what the ABA area means. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion to that end uh, with the inclusion of Hawaii, and then some some real discussion about Puerto Rico in the ABA Facebook group. Uh, the link to that discussion is in the show notes. Jeff shares his thoughts on all that in the third part of the show. But first, Dr. Amanda Rodewald is an ornithologist and conservation biologist at Cornell University. She is here to talk to me about the farm bill and the state of the birds. It is not all soybeans and corn. It's also bobolinks and sage grouse and grasshopper sparrows. She'll be with me right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first couple weeks of October 2017. We'll start once again in Alaska, specifically Gamble on St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea, where not one but two likely ABA area firsts were discovered in the last two weeks to add to the thick-billed warbler found there last month. This time around, the noteworthy birds are River Warbler, one of the skulky, marsh-loving Lacostula warblers, this one from Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And if that wasn't enough, a bird originally identified as a brown shrike, which is an infrequent but regular vagrant to the Bering Sea area, uh, turned out to be, once better photos were obtained and studied, the continent's first red-backed shrike. Or at least I should say the continent's first full red-backed shrike as the mystery shrike from Northern California in 2015 was determined to be likely a hybrid shrike with one of the parents as red-backed, so maybe we had 0.5 records of red-backed shrike before, but you got to round down in this situation, this gamble bird. It looks pure enough. This one goes to 11. Another fascinating bird in the ABA area in the last couple weeks was an odd beautio that was photographed in northern New Mexico that looks good for a potential ABA first variable hawk. Uh, this is a pretty widespread species in South America, not really that much further north than Colombia. Uh, and in, it is an austral migrant, though, at least kind of short distances within South America. Notably, this is not the first incidence of this species in the ABA Area of variable hawk, a formerly red-backed hawk, was found near Durango, Colorado in 1988, where it ended up pairing with a Swainson's hawk. It was suggested that perhaps it came up from South America with that Swainson's hawk, though obviously the specter of human intervention could not be adequately refuted. That bird was not accepted by Colorado or the ABA. Uh, something to think about with regards to this bird, though. Interestingly enough, New Mexico recorded its first white-tailed hawk in this same area earlier this year based on a sort of distant photo of a perched bird. I suppose you have to consider whether the bird was this individual, this this variable hawk, uh, too, as those photos were at a you know at an angle such that they did not eliminate variable hawk, which you know justifiably was not considered then. Moving on, an apparent common swift was photographed on the outer banks of North Carolina. Obviously, due diligence needs to be done to rule out other potential apis swifts, but it's notable that photos were taken of this bird. Uh, there are a surprising number of large, dark swift accounts all across the eastern part of the continent, western part too, for that matter. North Carolina itself has two previous. Uh, so many of these birds, by virtue of sort of the brevity of the sighting and the difficulty getting IDs of these fast-moving swifts, just kind of disappear. So it's 
it's amazing that, you know, with the increase of camera carrying birders, we might actually get some resolution on reports like this. A quick rundown of other firsts for the period. Uh, Gray Flycatcher was a first for Connecticut. Western Wood Peewee, a first for New Hampshire. A good candidate for Cassin's Vireo would be a first for Maine. A lot of western birds out east like you expect this time of the year. A young white-crowned pigeon was picked up by a bird rehabber in Galveston, Texas, which would be an official first for that state. Always great when Texas gets a new bird. And a blue bunting was seen in Arizona, which would be a first record. I should also make a quick note of the influx of dusky warblers in California this fall. There have been four at the time of this recording, all up and down the state. That's an ABA code four bird, so pretty unusual and a notable bird even in Alaska. So it's crazy to see so many in such a short period of time, all in California. This was only a short look at the rare bird highlights for the last couple weeks for all the rarities in the ABA area. Please check out the ABA blog every Friday morning for up-to-the-minute reports on rare birds throughout the U.S. and Canada. Join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. When birders think about the farm bill, they might be forgiven for thinking immediately about corn and soybeans, but it's not just an agricultural omnibus. It also provides important habitat for more than 100 species of birds and is the largest source of funding for habitat conservation on private lands. In August, the North American Bird Conservation Initiative released its 2017 State of the Birds, focusing on the farm bill and its conservation implications. I'm joined today by Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She's the Garvin Professor of Ornithology and Director of Conservation Biology at Cornell Lab. And we're going to talk a little bit about this year's State of the Birds and the Farmville. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll kind of lay the groundwork here. Uh, for people who might not know, what is the, the Farm Bill and what sort of environmental policies does it fund? The Farm Bill is really quite large. It includes 12 different titles representing a wide range of issues from agriculture and commodities to nutrition um, to more environmentally focused topics. Some of the ones people might have heard of are things like the Conservation Reserve Program, which pays farmers for taking environmentally sensitive land out of production and using more habitat and wildlife-friendly practices. There are also programs like the um, Wetland Reserve Program or the Farmable Wetlands Program that helps farmers and ranchers restore wetlands and establish plant cover on them. Um, there's the grassland reserve program that prevents grazing and pasture land from being converted to cropland. And there are also new kinds of programs like regional conservation partnership programs that really help leverage dollars and form new partnerships to protect the environment and really implement conservation out there on the landscape. That's really interesting. You know, I think a lot of birders, you know, immediately when we think of, you know, federal conservation programs, we, we always go to like the Department of the Interior, which, you know, funds national parks and wildlife refuge and all that stuff. But this Department of Agriculture, which is funded by the by the Farmville, has this huge role to play through these private public partnerships and essentially these, these easement programs. Um, so what is sort of an example of, of how these how these work? What does it look like from the from the farmer's perspective? Sure. And, and I'll just add, too, that, yeah, with the USDA, many people don't realize that even um, other agencies like U.S. Forest Service or the oh, Natural funny. Resources Conservation Service also fall under USDA. And so really, in terms of, of a department, it's hugely important for 
wildlife and habitat um, and natural resources in general. And the way the way USDA interacts with farmers um, through the Farm Bill, it's um, and again, it's not just farmers. So it's also really working with ranchers and foresters alike. Any sort of private landowner. Yeah. Right. Sure. And one of the primary mechanisms is through easements. And easements mm-hmm. are voluntary agreements where a landowner agrees to either stop using certain kinds of practices or land uses on certain sensitive lands, or they might, in addition, also manage land in a specific way. Um, so in the case of like the Conservation Reserve Program, the um, participants will actually plant and establish sort of long-term or perennial um, plants, um, so grasses or trees that provide cover, that controls soil erosion, they improve water quality, they're providing habitat for birds and other species. Um, So one of the things with easements, it is a really common tool that's used widely throughout a variety of organizations. So like land trusts, for example, Mm -hmm. use easements as one way they can protect lands. In the case of of the um, farm bill, most of the participants, they're receiving payments for their participation. Um, Other easements might use other mechanisms like tax reductions as well. But it has been a hugely successful program as a whole. Like just for example, the farm bill programs um, that have used these kinds of easements have doubled the number of grassland birds on farms. Um, In some areas, and and these these are points that are highlighted in in the State of the Birds report as well. But they were showing that um, in the prairie pothole region alone, waterfowl populations increased by 37 million birds in a 10-year period. That's unbelievable. I mean, it, yeah. it really is. So the it's demonstrated over the years to be a hugely successful approach to conservation that provides a win-win um, for yeah. the environment and for farmers. Are there any, besides just waterfowl, um, are there any sort of successes that you've seen come about because of these easements, because of these programs and and other groups of birds? Sure. And so, yeah, we found, so in addition to the grassland birds, waterfowl, shorebirds, um, one example is that the Farm Bill's forestry provisions, those have actually um, grown in the South, this the longleaf pine ecosystem, um, which has been, you know, a very threatened system, it's grown those forests by 50%. And it's wow. that provides habitat to many different bird species, including the endangered red cockaded woodpecker, and also northern bobwhite quail, you know, a species that's of interest to birders and to hunters alike. Um, another example is with the greater sage grouse, a species that people might have been hearing in the news a lot because we're tremendously concerned about declines we've been seeing. Um, the Farm Bill programs have protected over 5 million acres of sagebrush habitat. Um, and, and just as one example of the difference this makes, that amount of sagebrush habitat was one of the factors that resulted in the decision not to list the greater sage grouse as federally endangered right now. Yeah, I recall that being such a, you know, an enormous, I mean, everyone was pointing to that as such a great example of this public and private uh, intersection of interests. They uh, really worked hard to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. 
So grassland birds are among the most threatened groups of birds on the continent. These these programs are put in place. We, we are seeing these declines being reversed. Uh, what, in your opinion, is sort of the, the prognosis still for this for this group of birds? Well, they're still in a lot of trouble. Um, if we look at the breeding bird survey data and the most recent analysis of showing from 1966 to 2015, it shows that 64% of grassland bird species have significantly declined over that period. None have significantly increased, right? And that's including, you know, not only maybe some of the, the species that might be less common to us, like long spurs or burrowing owls, but even very common species, ones we're familiar with um, that used to be very abundant, like Eastern and Western meadowlarks, bobolinks, um, savanna sparrows, horned larks. You know, we're seeing declines in all of these. There have been programs that have been implemented, such as the Farm Bill, that are making substantial contributions to help stem these declines. Um, but there is a lot more to be done. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that the Farm Bill be reauthorized in 2018. And because grassland birds really do depend on those programs to a large extent. What are some of the the conservation programs that that you would sort of prioritize in this 2018 farm bill? Well, there so there are two different titles that have been really critical in terms of protecting the environment and protecting wildlife habitat. So those were the the conservation title and the forestry title. And those are some of the programs that I mentioned, like conservation reserve program. There's a conservation reserve enhancement program that targets some you know, particularly high priority issues that governments and NGOs have identified. Um, grassland reserve program, again, hugely important for many species. The wetlands program, these regional conservation partnerships, all of these really form a backbone of public and private conservation efforts and really show how when we work together, when we focus our efforts, we're able to make a difference out there. You, you mentioned, you know, these farm bill provisions not just being important for, for birds, although they are hugely important for birds, but for, for other organisms uh, and especially, you know, encouraging farmers to protect, you know, the environment around which they work. You know, this is sort of critical for their own well-being, too, if they're going to continue planting on these lands. In what ways do people who are involved in these, in these programs, in what ways do they kind of sell these programs to people who are working out in the, in the rural parts of the, of the continent as being in their own self-interest as well. Right. And that's, and in some ways it, it should be a very easy sell because people have been able to demonstrate that the farm bills provisions provide a wide variety of what we'd call ecosystem services, or some people might say co-benefits that support um, humans, you know, our well-being and health and even support the economy. So for example, by keeping cover, vegetative cover on farms, by not farming on erodible, um, you know, marginal lands, that reduces soil erosion. Um, so that's helping to actually, you know, keep the land more healthy, um, perhaps for future use. Um, but at the same time, when we reduce soil erosion um, and reduce runoff um, from cropland, 
we're really reducing the amount of sediments and nitrogen and phosphorus that's going into our rivers and lakes, streams and wetlands. You know, so those are impacting you know, locally, those waterways, but they also are even contributing to bigger issues. Um, people might have heard of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which I'll say this year was the largest that's ever been recorded. You know, what's causing that is runoff, agricultural runoff. So one way that the Farm Bill is really helping, you know, as in a much broader sense, is by reducing um, that runoff and protecting our waterways. That also has an important economic benefit in that it reduces the burden that taxpayers have for water filtration systems. Just as one example, um, there was a study that was done in just even one single watershed in Iowa that found that the CRP dollars that were invested actually provided almost double the returns in terms of those ecosystem services and the water that was being protect protected. Um, we can also think of some of the benefits that might be related to um, by providing healthy waterfowl populations, you know, um, hunters, um, are, contribute you know, millions and millions of dollars every year to the economy. I guess I should say hunters and bird watchers are. <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to encourage our share. Yeah, right. Is um and actually the the economic benefits from bird watching are really starting to dwarf um, the more traditional funding sources that we're seeing. You know, through hunting and fishing fishing license fees. Um, there have been um, one study also. I mean, just in terms of of a co-benefit was finding, they were looking at the projections for if this farm bill does happen to be reauthorized. And the estimate was that in some regions, so like in the Prairie Pothole region, which is you know, an, an area that's very much impacted by the farm bill, um, that there were um, going to be you know, billion, a billion dollars of net benefits from ecosystem services in just 20 years. So this is really um, an important bill, again, not only for those of us who care about birds and who care about bird habitat, but also for those of us who want to make sure our environment continues to be productive for future generations. And even those of us who want to really reduce the burden that taxpayers have to bear for providing mm -hmm. basic services. Yeah, it's sort of a, a win, 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 win. Right, <laughs> it's like, yeah. There's really... it's, it's that triple bottom line. Right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, one of the more remarkable um, graphs on the state of the birds this year was the, you, you kind of talked about the way the wetland birds have reversed their population declines when wetland easements were added to the farm bill. Grassland easements weren't added until, was it 2003? And, you know, we're not far enough along to really see any sort of increase, but they do appear to have stabilized um, following the in introduction of those those conservation programs, so that is definitely something to to look to as for hope, I suppose, when you were looking at the declines of these grassland birds. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, it demonstrates that when we're working together and when we have programs that are encouraging the individual landowners, you know, those people people to cooperate with the public sector, that we can achieve these these really positive outcomes.
So thanks, Dr. Rodewald. Amanda Rodewald is the Garvin Professor of Ornithology and Director of Conservation Biology at Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can find the 2017 State of the Birds report focusing on the Farm Bill at stateofthebirds.org and North American Bird Conservation Initiative stuff at nabci-us.org. That's a really amazing working group. It consists of so many different <laughs> conservation organizations, like everybody who's anybody in the birding world and in the U.S., um, and even people you wouldn't expect are involved in that. Um, thanks again for your time. Great. It was, it was wonderful to talk with you. Hello. This is ABA President Jeffrey Gordon. Recently, a post went up on the blog 10,000 Birds asking, again, the question, should the ABA area include Puerto Rico? Author Jason Crotty, also a contributor to ABA publications, thinks that perhaps it should. Jason and his post got a robust conversation about the ABA area going at the ABA's discussion group on Facebook. Find that at facebook.com groups slash ABA birds. Now, Getting birders talking on social media about the ABA area isn't a particular challenge, but the ease with which it happens and the passion with which birders advocate for their particular ideas is striking. You might have thought that the recent vote to expand the ABA area to include Hawaii would move that topic down the playlist a bit, but no. And that's healthy. Questions about how a community defines itself are an ongoing process, especially a community consisting of thousands upon thousands of people, many of whom have an obvious love for debate. I wanted to offer a few thoughts of my own on a couple of the issues raised by Jason and others in hopes that they'll be helpful as people form and revise their opinions. But before I do, I want to thank 10,000 Birds and Jason for encouraging discussion of the American Birding Association, the ABA area, and the birds and birders of Puerto Rico. I'm following that conversation with interest. I also want to say that the thoughts I'm sharing here are merely those of Jeff on a podcast, not official ABA policy. On that Facebook thread, Jason wrote, my thought would be to figure out what the purpose of the ABA area is and then determine the proper area given its purpose. Right now, it makes no sense other than as a historical anomaly. All of Canada, most of the United States, and a tiny sliver of France. I'm not sure there's any logic to that configuration. Close quote. Ah, logic. One thing you notice about birders is that we are deeply in love with logic, or at least the idea of logic. And certainly it would be convenient to have the boundaries of the ABA area be logical. But I'm not sure I agree with Jason's formulation of a proper area. I think that may be more an ideal than something that is achievable in real life. Allow me an admittedly imperfect analogy. A homeowner, after living in a house for a few decades, says, You know, there are a lot of things about this house that could be improved, and a couple that really get on my nerves. I'd like to be living in a house that meets all my needs today, not the inevitable compromise I made years ago when so many things were different. Even if our homeowner has more or less unlimited funds for demolition, construction, and or renovation, the neighbors, the homeowners association, the city, the county, and a host of other regulators and stakeholders will also need to be satisfied. And guaranteed, the renovated house will inevitably still fall short of our hypothetical owner's dreams. This isn't an argument against home improvement or for or against Puerto Rico and the ABA area, more saying that our choices are always constrained and our results are never perfectly satisfying logically or otherwise. 
I think some of the arguments presented suggest that the field is a bit more wide open than it actually is in practice. The ABA area is an almost 50-year-old house that tens of thousands have lived in and millions visit each year or at least pass by. And as it stands, any contemplated renovations have to be approved by a majority of the current residents. So please, let's not completely lose sight of that in our online discussions. We tried hard to get a read on what the ABA community wanted in, or perhaps even out, of the ABA area. The answer was clearly, add Hawaii and nothing else. That consensus may already be out of date, and it certainly will be at some point. So what is the ABA area? First, a couple of things it's not. It's not North America, because Mexico. It's not North America north of Mexico, because Greenland. It's not strictly biogeographic. If it were, some of the most storied ABA birding locales in South Florida, South Texas, and Southern Arizona would be out, or significant parts of Northern Mexico would be in. It's not geographically compact, especially since the addition of Hawaii, although it wasn't super compact before that. But to say that it's not perfectly any of these things doesn't mean that biogeography plays no role. It and other factors do, as do history and tradition. I would say, and again, this is Jeff talking, not official ABA policy, that yes, the ABA area is essentially the U.S. and Canada, plus inclusions like Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. But more than that, it's the ABA's patch. And birders define their patches in all kinds of idiosyncratic, eclectic ways. Many birders are perfectly comfortable with county listing, for example, but it's hard to come up with a geographic unit more arbitrary, less logical, than counties. You're merely ceding the decisions to some other body, one that doesn't take birds or birders into account at all. I'm not sure that we should expect the boundaries of the ABA area to be entirely logical from a geopolitical, biogeographic, or any other standpoint. They just have to be agreed upon. Right now, that agreement includes Hawaii, but excludes Puerto Rico and Guam. Is that fair? Not really. Would adding all the U.S. territories make it entirely fair? I don't see that it would. More fair? Perhaps. So I'm glad to be having this discussion, but I would encourage people to frame it in ways that acknowledge that logic may not be the highest goal in determining the boundaries of the ABA area, and that redrawing them is at least a moderately complicated undertaking. Finally, I encourage you to learn about Puerto Rico and its birds and birders, whatever your opinion on boundaries. Puerto Rico is a wonderful place with a vibrant and growing birding community and a lot of terrific endemic birds and other birds, some of them critically endangered. And if you'd like to do something to help that community recover in the wake of Hurricane Maria, I recommend checking out the GoFundMe campaign set up by Kevin Laughlin and our friends at Wildside Nature Tours in conjunction with Birds Caribbean. Details are in the show notes. Thank you, and good birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Our goal is to provide members and the larger birding community with resources to help them become better birders and to enjoy birding more. We have publications, we have discounts to partners, including Beauty of Books, we have events, we have free online resources, all of which are supported by members. Get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Rebecca Muhlenberg of Duluth, Minnesota, Brad Sale and Evan Farmer of Monk's Corner, South Carolina. I hope I am getting this right. 
Ayapan Nair and Rada Pillai and Nakul of North Wales, Pennsylvania. Kenneth Rosenblatt of Brooklyn, New York, who says that he has become an intermediate birder and wants to get better. I hope the ABA can help you with that. Thanks to all of you and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. We are online at aba.org on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the Arabian Breeders Association, which I am happy to report in my subsequent research changed their name to the Arabian Horse Association, which was a good move on their part. Arabian Breeders Association sounds a bit too much like a sketchy fertility clinic in Riyadh, a conclusion that that ABA probably came to. That is not a name you want to be saddled with. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.